And so good afternoon, everyone, and thanks, Mira, for the introduction. Um, this is me, um, Rachel Aldroyd. As Mira said, I'm the managing editor of the Bureau for Investigative Journalism, um, which is a not-for-profit newsroom based in London. We've now got um, a second office in Manchester, um, which is in the northwest of the UK. Um, and while we're UK-based, um, we run many international stories and do a lot of international work and work with lots of journalists and publications all around the world. Um, the Bureau is part of a different um, but very, very rising developing model of journalism that is becoming increasingly important um, in the news ecosystem, particularly in the US and Europe. Um, in the US, the model is pretty well established. In Europe, it's still fairly new. And in the wider world, it's still really, really at its beginning stages. But we are seeing similar organizations cropping up everywhere in Asia, in Africa, um, in, even in Russia. So um, it is a model that is definitely here to stay, I think, and that we'll see a lot more of um, in the decades to come. Um, and the models sprung up in reaction to um, what is very much, at the moment, um, particularly a Western media problem, which is the financially squeezed media sector and um, a declining traditional media. Um, as I say, it's largely at the moment a problem that the US and, and Europe is really, really trying to get its head around. Um, so please forgive me for spending the next hour talking about something that, for many people in this room who um, probably in their own practice of journalism are having to deal with staying out of jail or even worse, um, staying alive, um, what I'm going to be talking about is probably was going to feel quite a bit of a luxurious position. Um, however, I do think, and hopefully, I've always pointless me being here, hopefully I can offer some insight and some thoughts around how you can um, affect change as a result of your journalism. And I've been a journalist for 25 years. Um, for most of that time, for about 20 years, I worked in a very commercially successful environment. Um, I've always done, focused on investigative or reportage journalism. Um, I think if I had known what I know now about how journalism can affect change in real society, I would have had a much more uh, productive career. So hopefully I can feed some thoughts into to your practice of journalism. Um, I started and became a journalist because I believed, or because I wanted to change the world, and I really believed that journalism could do that. Um, and that's what I want to talk about, because I actually am working for an organisation now which is completely driven by change, and a sector, this new not-for-profit model, which is totally driven by change. So, for the next, um, as I say, sort of 30 minutes, 40 minutes, and then I'll open up to questions, uh, this is what I'm going to talk about. Um, very briefly, what investigative journalism is, um, you know, it's pretty well understood, but just so we all know what we're talking about, um, why it's important, and then most of my time I'll be, as I say, talking about how journalists and journalism can change the world, um, and how this not-for-profit model is increasingly focused on this change, and really thinking about this change. Um, so what is investigative journalism in the context that I'm speaking about? Uh, it's deep research, it reveals something new, usually in the public interest, and most importantly, as I say, it aims for change. Um, and we're working on a background of, um, of an industry which is on the edge, 
particularly, as I say, in the Western um, situation. So our media models are, are in crisis. Um, we thought 10 years ago, as we hit the financial global downturn, that the media sector was being battered. Um, actually, in the past 18 months, it's been absolutely decimated. Um, it's not, only, it's not only been crunched by the financial crisis, it's also been crunched by the fact that reporters and newsrooms are desperately trying to deal with a 24-hour, seven days a week, um, 365 days a year news cycle. So constantly having to report on what is happening. Um, we're operating a global world, so it's getting much more complex. We're having to get our heads um, across lots of different issues different time zones, different cultures, different spaces. Um, and at the same time, public trust is at an all-time low, and our profession is sort of on a similar level to um, estate agents in this country, so we're not trusted and we're mightily disliked. Um, and in reaction to, to what has been going on in the media world, um, we've had this new model spring up, which is um, a philanthropically funded um, journalism. So. It's trusts um, and individuals who really believe um, that journalism is important to democracy and believe that the journalism that helps um, hold people to account provides really important information in a time when fake news is becoming increasingly a problem, that this is, that this is getting harder to do in the commercial environment um, that used to keep our news alive, and therefore they, these, these foundations and these individuals are starting to invest in um, new startups, which are not for profit. Um, it's a very different environment. And I talk about um, traditional media being a transactional um, uh, sector. So it's about profit. It's driven by profit. And journalism and journalists aren't necessarily driven by profit, but they work in environments that are driven by profit. In this new model, in the not for profit model, um, we're transformational. So that's the thing that drives us, that's the thing that keeps us going. How can we transform the world and, and the situation? And as a result, we've had to produce new, new measures uh, for success. And we've really become very focused on impact. And um, I've worked at the Bureau for seven years. Um, it's when I first joined and people started talking about impact, I didn't really know what they were talking about. It wasn't something I thought about. Um, now it's become a bit of an obsession. So these are some of the organisations. These are American organisations, but they're some of the best-known not-for-profit journalistic organisations. ProPublica is perhaps the granddaddy of not-for-profit journalism. It's a big beast based in New York, um, works a lot with the established media. Uh, the Bureau was modelled on ProPublica. It's been going for 10 years. Um, Reveal, which is from the Centre for Investigative Journalism, is one of the oldest not-for-profit organisations has been going for 25 years, but in the past seven years has gone from seven journalists to 70 journalists, so it's really quite a sizeable newsroom now. Um, the Centre for Public Integrity, you may not have heard of them, but you will have heard of the ICIJ. And the ICIJ, which is obviously the organisation behind the Panama Papers and the Paradise Papers, um, they worked under the Centre for Public Integrity. So the Centre launched ICIJ. They've now sp spun out of the Centre, but... Um, the centre's still going, and that it was their thinking that sort of formed the ICOJ. And then the Marshall Project, which is amazing, really innovative, really interesting to look at, just the stories and how they tell their stories. Um, it's very focused on, social on, on the justice system in the US, so that's all they do, but they do very deep 
investigative reporting on the justice system and really, really interesting stories. Um, in Europe, there is the Bureau. There's an organisation in Germany called Corrective, which is getting bigger and bigger. And um, there's one in the, in the Balkans, the OCCRP, which has been going for about 12 years. Um, we're probably the three biggest. There's other organisations um, like De Correspondent and Mediapart in France. They're slightly different models. They're a bit of not-for-profit, but um, Mediapart is intending to be a um, commercial enterprise eventually, and De Correspondent works slightly differently too. But they're part of this whole same sector. So, as I say, it, it is growing outside of Europe and, and the US. There's organisations like Rappler in um, the Philippines, which is amazing. Um, they do fantastic reporting. Really, really suggest you go and look them up because they're really worth looking at too. Um, so, um, why are we different? Well, we tend to be digital, um, partly because the organisations have been launched in the past decade or at the most two decades. Uh, it's obviously much easier to and cheaper to publish digitally rather than have a, you know, be, be lumbered with, a, with an old newspaper product. Um, we tend to be very collaborative, and as uh, Mira said, something I was talking about yesterday, um, you know, we're much more open to working with other people, partly because we've all had to work with the traditional media to get our reach, to get our stories out, and, that, and partly because we're tiny um, and we're quite a fragile sector, so we, are, we have learned to take support and work together. Um, it's a very different way of working to traditional media models. Um, our, the key thing that we all share is we're focused. That might be on one specific area or it might be on one specific way of journalism. So the Bureau of Investigative Journalism is focused on investigative journalism. And the privilege that we all have is time. Um, you know, my journalists in, in our newsroom will spend three months, six months, sometimes a year reporting out a story before we even see the first um, published work. Uh, we're not, we don't have to respond to this ridiculous 24-7 clock. Um, and then, as I say, importantly, we're driven by impact, um, the desire to have change. Um, so, despite the fact that that's how, what we're aiming for, it's actually really hard um, Richard Tofel, Dick Tofel, um, he's the founder and um, key person behind ProPublica. He's done an awful lot of work in this area around, around impact and thinking about public interest journalism and having a change. And um, he says that true impact, i.e. in the real world, change sense of the world, is actually relatively rare and very hard to happen. Um, so, you know, making, making change happen as journalism is not easy. But nonetheless, it's something that we strive to do. And at the Bureau, what we've been doing for the past year is we've actually spent um, some time. Christopher Hurd, who um, is an investigative journalist of 40 years, runs a, a film company called Dartmouth Film. He's done a year-long study looking at investigative journalism works, the mechanism of impact. So really thinking about how journalism has had an impact and how it can have an impact. Um, and I just want to share a few thoughts from that uh, piece of work with you. Um, and then I'll go on and talk about the Bureau and how we work and the type of stories we do and how we try and ensure that those stories affect change. Uh, so the first thing we did when we set out um, over a year ago to look at this word and 
concept of impact was we worked with YouGov, which are pollsters, um, to actually ask a group of opinion formers in their space about how they perceived investigative journalism and what investigative journalism did in society. And this is quite, um, I mean, it's a fairly obvious thing. If you ask a group of people what investigative journalism does, you would hope that most people say it's an important part of the democratic process. You would hope that a lot of people say it's a source of important information. And you would hope that a lot of people, that not many people would say it's an irritation which cannot be ignored. Um, so it's great that people who change things in our country actually agree that investigative journalism and, and good deep journalism is really important. Um, and this slide is very interesting because we asked all the opinion formers how they thought investigative journalism compared with these other actors of change. So we asked how does it compare to corporate lobbying, how does it compare to actually voting social media campaigns, um, NGOs, protest, and actually contacting your, your MP. And really interestingly, and much to our surprise, um, people said that investigative journalism, if you add the reasonable impact and the large impact um, together, you actually see that investigative journalism is considered to have more impact and more influence over even voting, or certainly over um, campaigns and NGO work. So, you know, this doesn't mean to say it has this impact, but it does mean that people who make change, who are responsible for change, think that it is really important and that it really can do something to um, change things in our society. And th on this slide, um, we asked, how, how does journalism um, affect change? So, policies of companies, lots of people thought that it helps, it helps us to um, influence companies' policies. Um, government policies and consumer policies. Very, very similar sort of split there um, across the whole three areas that we think are important um, in the sphere. Um, so then once we, so we did that piece of research and then we went on and spent, or Christo, not me, um, uh, eight months looking at four key case studies, two quite old, uh, Watergate and the Sunday Times, um, the Lidamide investigation, and then two more contemporary, uh, which was a, a massive piece of work that Channel 4 did, did three documentaries looking at Sri Lanka and the Tamils, and then our own work, the Bureau's um, five-year-long uh, project looking at drone strikes and targeted killings in Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, and Afghanistan. And the reason we chose these, we could have chosen anything. You know, it was really quite hard to work out which were the case studies to look at. We decided to choose Watergate and Thalidomide because one of the questions we asked our opinion formers was, which pieces of journalism do you think have had an impact? And those two were the top two. Um, and they are the things that everyone talks about when they aspire to being an investigative journalist or when you say what the most influential pieces of investigative journalism in the past 50 years, those two always come up. Um, and it's also categorically proved that those two pieces of, of work had significant impact. Um, we looked at Channel 4's films because, again, um, it's been widely established that that, really did, that that piece of work really did have an impact. Um, and also we wanted to look outside just print. We wanted to make sure that we were looking at docs and TV because obviously a lot of investigative journalism and really good journalism goes on in that sphere. Um, and then, of course, we wanted to look at one of our own because we could really properly lift the lid and really dig into it and talk to our journalists and their work and look back at all our emails and, and you know, really properly study it. So, so those were the four case studies 
that we've studied um, and the key characteristics that we found were the way that these pieces of work had an impact was it was sustained over a long period of time. Um, many people think that the thalidomide story, the Sunday Times investigation, happened over months. Well, actually, it, took, it happened over five or six years. And um, the reporters and the team that was under Sir Harry Evans, they, they just kept going at it, even when they came under attack from even within their own paper. People started to get really sick of this story that kept getting run in the Sunday Times. So it took about five years. Same with Watergate. Years and years and years of reporting before actually... Um, anything happened. And Nixon only resigned. Nixon even, there was an election where he won a huge landslide in the middle of their reporting. Um, Sri Lanka, really interesting. Channel 4 had run two documentaries. One of them had over a million um, people watching it, which for a post-watershed, so why a documentary that goes out late at night at 11 o'clock, really amazing audience in this country to get for such a serious uh, piece of journalism. Then they did another film, they did a couple of news stories, it had no impact whatsoever. So then they decided that they had to make a, a cinematic film, a 90-minute film, um, which they showed in cinemas around the world to tiny audiences. Even if you added up all the audiences that saw those films in all the different screenings, it was still in the thousands rather than the um, hundreds of thousands that saw it on telly. But actually they ensured that the right people got into the room. So... One of the people who saw that film was um, David Cameron, who made a massive big statement. Not David Cameron, sorry. David Miliband, who made a big statement um, as he was Foreign um, Secretary at the time, and he made a big statement at the UN about the problem because he'd seen that film. Um, and there was other politicians who had been invited in to screenings by Amnesty and Human Rights Watch, who then took, who'd taken the film on um, in order to, to um, have change. And this moves me on to the next point that they all had in common, which is that the stories, all four stories, were picked up by civil society. So it wasn't just people reporting on the issue. Um, so all the projects kept reporting and kept telling the story time and time again, but they also started to work with people in civil society. So like Amnesty and Human Rights Watch, um, in the case of um, thalidomide, they started working with... Um, solicitors who were working for the victims. They started working with Ralph Nader, who was um, a big campaigner in the US and um, convinced people to stop drinking um, and buying spirits from distillers. Uh, and that caused the company in the end to actually go, oh my goodness, this is now affecting our profits line. We really need to do something about this. Um, same in Watergate. The reporters worked with um, lawyers, judges, solicitors to make sure that civil society picked it up um, and affected change. And the other thing they had in common um, was all four of those pieces of work, they, they had a desired impact from the beginning and they understood what that impact was, um, or at least very early on in the investigation. So um, Sir Harry Evans and Bruce Page, who were the two key people in the thalidomide story, um, are very clear in their minds that they wanted to get decent compensation for the victims of thalidomide. Um, in our Drones project, we were not intent on stopping drones. We didn't think that would ever happen. And of course, it wasn't what we wanted was um, transparency. This was a war that was being fought in really remote parts of the world. So drones, uh, American drones run by the CIA, were dropping bombs on 
on the tribal areas in Pakistan where there's no journalists, un unseen, unreported, unheard. In Somalia, again, you know, very few journalists. In Yemen, um, and now in Afghanistan, where again there's, there's very little reporting goes on. So, you know, what we wanted was transparency. We wanted the data, and actually, the U.S. Government wouldn't give us the data, so we decided, okay, we had to compile the data ourselves. So, you know, our ask, our desired impact from the beginning was transparency. Um, so, there are some tensions that come up in this whole, if you're um, sort of aiming for change and impact, and you're, you're thinking about these three characteristics, what's going to cause your impact, there are tensions that come up. What is the line between journalism and advocacy? Um, this is a question I get asked all the time. You know, am I a journalist or am I an advocate? Um, I'm very clear in my mind that I'm a journalist. And um, I think that there are two very different things. We need to work together. We need to collaborate. But we're very different. Um, we approach things very differently. And we play our own parts um, in, this, in, in the whole sort of desire for change. Journalism starts with questions. And we're guided by the story. So we will... Um, report inconvenient truths. We will report on the facts we find. Um, we may continue to report the story out over years and years and years. We may think that we know what change should happen, but we are and should always be guided by the story um, and what we find. Advocacy, however, starts with the answers. It knows what it wants to change. It takes the facts and the um, evidence that works within their advocacy to help them create change but they're trying to find the answers and the things that will help solve their problem and take it to the end. They don't ever go off what they think is wrong. Um, and I talk about a, a line of change. At one end is extreme advocacy, extreme campaigning. At the other end is the paper for record, papers like the FT or the Times. Um, and somewhere in the middle is, is a line where if you go over this side, you become an advocate, and if you stay on that side, you're a journalist. And I think if you work in the not-for-profit sector as an organisation, as a journalist, or if you, even if you're an investigative journalist, you need to think whereabouts on that line you are, because you don't need to be a paper of record. You can be a little bit closer to advocacy. And if you think, and it, it will change from story to story as well, if you think about where on that line um, you are, then you also can think about who you need to work at with in this space to affect the change that you want. Um, so I think there is a very strong relationship between journalists and campaigners, particularly working in the not-for-profit world, but in, in investigative journalists, uh, in investigative journalism generally. You know, we've always used campaigners and NGOs for our sources. Um, we've used them to think about what are the issues we should be looking at. We've often used them for case studies. Um, I think what is happening now in this not-for-profit world is we are collaborating a little bit more closely because we want to make sure that they have our work and that they're aware of our work from fairly early stages um, in our investigations so that we know that as we publish the story, the story won't stop to be told and the, the work won't stop to be used. It will have a digital long tail, a very long life. And also, as we continue to report, we know that it will be picked up and it will be sent to the right people and it will continue to be pushed. Um, and I think if we really think in this way and we think about how we can affect change, I actually also think it will massively help with this whole issue of trust. Um, 
So out of all that, we comes this model for change, which is um, a not-for-profit newsroom which is all about transformation. It's all about change. Um, and in order for this to happen, the newsroom it needs to embed the idea of impact in the culture. So my journalists um, working in the Bureau I'll get so tired of me asking, what's the policy ask? What are we trying to change here? What's the impact we're trying to have? And that's not about saying, okay, this is the piece of impact we want to have, and that's all we will care about. It's just so they're aware and thinking about what is the thing that we want to change, and how can we make sure that is embedded into our reporting? Um, it's really important that um, reporters, editors, funders, um, people working in this space understand that, that um, change takes incredible time and huge amounts of reporting. Um, our drones work, for example, which is one of the things that the Bureau is best known for, um, for the first two years we reported in a vacuum. Uh, it was really hard. It was one of, it's, we started the project in the second year of the uh, organisation's life. We kept getting asked by our board, by our funders, why have we got three journalists working on this project? It's not getting anywhere. We're having stories on Channel 4, in the, in the Times, in um, The Guardian, and yet nobody was reporting on our drones work at all. It was really, really hard to convince everybody that it was a really important story that nobody else was doing um, and that we had to keep going at. And it was finally when it made the front page of the New York Times about 18 months into the project and in 18 months into our reporting that everyone suddenly went, ah, okay, maybe this is important. And now my cuttings feed on a daily basis, our work will be cited in at least two publications around the world. Um, and it is simply because we've constantly kept on at it and haven't given up. It took, you know, it has taken an awful lot of time. Um, it's really important to think about that line of change, I think. Um, it's really important to know wh at what point you are tipping over the line into advocacy and, at what, and you know, making sure that you're aware of the parameters and that you stay in the journalism space. Because particularly if you're working on projects that take an awful lot of time, where you're working very closely with advocates and campaigners and NGOs, as a journalist, you're getting very embedded in the subject. Um, our, our drones reporters were talking to families who'd lost you know, children or their grandmother or their breadwinner um, and no, as far as they were concerned nobody in the world cared, nobody understood, they were seen as terrorists. Um, you know, that, is, that caused a lot of compassion in our journalists but it was really important that they continue to be journalists and not advocates. They could work with the advocacy side, but they had to continue to be journalists. So, for example, um, in the last two years of um, Obama's presidency, what we saw in Pakistan was civilians were being killed by these drones at a really high rate, hundreds a year. And then in the last two years, it suddenly dropped off massively. And we have been told that it dropped off because, in part because of our reporting, in part because of all the advocacy work, because people were talking about it, because there were demonstrations in Washington over, over the civilians, because Reprieve, the advocacy organisation that we work closely with, took family victims over to Washington. Um, so, you know, so it became important to ensure that civilians were, were not being killed. So, but it was important as journalists that we reported that out as well. Um, we needed to make impact somebody's job. Um, this is a new 
thing that the whole space is thinking about? It, can we create a bridge between our journalists and making impact happen? So make that a role in organisations um, like ours and collaborate, not just with other journalists, but with um, people who can affect change. So that's talking a little bit about the model. Um, now I'd like to talk a bit about the Bureau and how we do our work and the type of work that we do and um, in practice how we make this happen. So um, as Mira said at the beginning, we were launched in 2010. We're the oldest, largest not-for-profit organisation in the UK. We currently have 16 journalists. Um, we've sort of expanded from about 9, 10 journalists three years ago to 16 today. Um, and we're, we're growing quite rapidly. I think we'll be about 20 by the end of the year. Um, and we're growing because there is a need. Uh, and people perceive there is a need, so they're giving us money, which is allowing us to, as, as, to expand. And, you know, in the US, this is happening at a huge scale. So ProPublica, post-Trump, had three million US dollars donated almost overnight, sort of in the weeks after um, the, the um, election. Um, so, I mean, they've grown really, really rapidly in the past 18 months. Um, these are some of the areas. I've mentioned a couple of them, but these are some of the things that we've been looking at in the past um, year um, to two years. The, the drones work, counterterrorism and targeted killings, um, still one of our biggest pieces of work. We've been doing it for five years. Um, it's still one of the things we're best known at for, particularly in an international level. Um, an area that we've really started to look at, we're about to launch a new big project uh, next week, but we've already been looking at it in a Western world. We're about to start looking at it um, in the developing world, which is the impact of superbugs or antibiotic resistance on global health. Um, how the fact that antibiotics are increasingly not um, working properly, how that's going to completely affect our health systems, not just our ability to treat people and treat diseases that we're trying to eradicate, like malaria, like TB, but also are having huge impact on our health. We're going to report a story at the end of this week, beginning of next week, about how this issue is a major issue in Yemen at the moment. All the um, NGOs are really struggling to, to deal with the catastrophe that's happened in Yemen. And one of the factors is that they, they just can't... The antibiotics that they're giving to people, the drugs they're giving to people, are just not working. Um, so it means that people who are coming in in desperate need of medicine, they're giving them the drugs to, to help solve it, but actually they're ending up having to stay in hospitals, and most of these hospitals are makeshift, for three, four weeks when they should be able to be cured within a couple of days. Um, and that's because of antibiotic resistance. Um, we've looked at PR and spin, which is this whole fake news. I hate using the term fake news, but um, it's the whole manipulation of information, how um, algorithms are helping... Um, political parties and companies um, to, to tell false stories. And I heard it was a really interesting talk this morning about um, a story in Mexico. A lot of work being done in this area as well in, in Oxford. Um, we've looked at private spies. So this is um, the Weinstein situation where um, private spy companies were used to spy and gain information um, on people that were accusing him so that um, they could then go and blackmail people who might actually report on him. Um, it's not, I mean, the Weinstein issue made this quite a big subject, but um, it's actually lots of corporations that, that use private spies quite a lot to um, spy on, on people, on activists, on campaigners, on people trying to do good. Um, and then the global industrialisation of food. 
another very big area for us. Um, this is the, the sort of fact that our food production across the world is increasingly being done by a very small group of companies, most of them private companies. So there is no scrutiny of these companies, partly because reporters aren't reporting on them, but also because they're not listed on stock markets. So there isn't even the financial scrutiny of these companies and the methods, um, the manipulation of our food, the, the things that goes into our food, um, pollution, how our food is created um, is becoming and will become an increasing problem as we try to feed um, a hugely growing population. Um, uh, here's this is a couple of stories that, we, that we've run. Um, one of the stories was looking, this was looking at dark ads. So this is, um, in this country, all of our uh, political ads are monitored and they have to comply by very strict standards. But in our last election, there were lots of Facebook ads. So we collected all these Facebook ads um, with, by partnering with a civic tech company that built this software, people downloaded onto their computer, and then that could collect all the Facebook ads, feed them back into um, the central computer so we could see, into a big database so we could see how the different parties were using Facebook. And this was obviously after the Trump election. We really wanted to see if this was impacting our own election. And very, very interestingly, Jeremy Corbyn was so much better at this than, than Theresa May. Um, that was quite an interesting area, increasingly will be. Um, this is within our farming work. This was one of the pieces we did on farming in the UK. This was looking at how our farming in this country has become industrialized. Each dot on our, on our country um, is a, it's a farm that has either been launched or taken over by a big multinational and is now one of these American-style mega farms, which means that you can have up to a million chickens, um, 20,000 pigs, loads of cows in, in, one, in one space at any one point. Um, so you can see how the impact, and it started in 2002, um, how the impact over a very, very short period of time has um, changed our farming landscape in this country. Um, and this is happening all over the world. Um, we always publish in, in partnership, well, not always, but most of the time we publish in partnership. And this is all again about trying to get an impact. Um, we're a not-for-profit organisation. We have very limited resource. Um, we want our resource to be spending their time doing deep investigative journalism, not working out how to get our story read by maximum numbers of people or even how to write brilliant headlines, which will bring in readers. So um, we work with the traditional media, with the Sunday Times, then the Guardian, even the Daily Mail or the Eye. That was a story we ran at the beginning of the week. Internationally, we've worked with the New York Times, Washington Post, um, um, papers in Pakistan, in India, in Afghanistan, um, lots of European papers. And we also try and have an impact actually on journalism. So. Um, this is a project that, that Mira mentioned earlier. Um, in, in this country, at the moment, in the past two years, we've seen a shocking decline in our local media. Um, local papers being shut, local journalists losing their jobs. Many of our local papers now are produced by two people or a central hub of people um, in a very different part of the country. Um, it means that uh, we just do not have accountability journalism at a local level in the same way as we used to have. And um, as an organisation focused on um, public interest journalism and holding power to account, 
um, we started to think, well, actually, one of the areas in this country where power is not being held to account is at a local level. So what can we do, or is there something that we can do to, to change this or help this or have an impact on this? Um, and we launched in April the Bureau Local Project, which is partly um, based around data. So we have a central team in the Bureau building quite big, ambitious data sets, which the type of data sets that require proper skilled coders um, and data journalists. I don't understand what they have on their screen. Most of the time, it's just sort of lines of code. Um, and they work with a network of local reporters that we've built up over the year. We now have 560 local reporters working in this network, um, many of them based in their local paper or some of them freelancers. Um, and they they are invited in to work on an investigation. Um, they come in, they get access to the data, they get access to the stories that other reporters are um, surfacing, they get access to comments, so everything is pulled, everything is shared. It's a very ICIJ model of, of journalism and collaboration. And then they all publish in the same week, um, which means there's a lot of buzz around the subject. Um, you have 20 MPs, for example, demanding change because every single local reporter has contacted their local MP at the same time and suddenly you've got lots of MPs um, saying actually there's something wrong here we need we need to change something and you end up with debates in parliament or you end up with with proper change because there is a lot of noise um, so it means that there's more public interest journalism happening at a local level more local journalists thinking about holding power to account and investigative journalism um, more local journalists actually being able to do it because they can spare a couple of hours a week to do this type of thing. And because everybody's sharing it, um, it's like equivalent to days and days of work. And from an impact point of view, you've suddenly got a big noise, lots of people who can change things actually demanding that change. Um, this is just one of the hack days we did around the country. It's five different locations. We pulled all the data into this big database and then we brought people together in five different locations, hooked them up over um, projectors, um, and they all worked on the, on the data to find the stories, and then they had a week to go out and report those stories, um, fed them back in, and then a week later, we all published the stories. This was one of our election um, stories in next Saturday, on the 3rd of February. We're doing another big hack day where we have pulled in loads and loads of data about local government spending and local government budgets, and we've got uh, five cities again, um, over 100 journalists are going to be working on that data across the 3rd of February. Again, they'll have a week to pull in the stories and report them out, and then we'll all publish on the same day about um, it, where the cuts are happening in the um, local authority level. Uh, that's the story I think I talked about, um, the result of that hack day, just working on voter information, um, we pulled in lots of really, really complex data um, to see which seats in our elections would be swung. Um, and we actually called a number of seats that would swing which weren't shown up in the, in the posters because we were just looking at um, how, what the data showed as opposed to um, questioning people and asking them how they were going to vote. Um, and this is one of the most recent pieces of work that has probably had certainly in the past year, one of the, perhaps the most impact that we have done. Um, it was, again, it was a bureau local project. Um, we wanted to look at domestic violence cuts. So um, our Prime Minister, Theresa May, had been talking, in fact, it had been part of her election campaign, was to 
put money into provision for people who, are suffering, uh, who have suffered from um, domestic violence. Um, and what we've been told from our local reporters is that this was quite a big issue, that there was lots of refuges being cut, uh, funding to refuges being, being cut, um, refuges just surviving on a shoestring with you know, volunteers keeping these things going. Um, and they were, they, many of the, our reporters in our network had actually been reporting this in isolation over the past year. So what we did is we pulled all the data together from all the local areas, put it into a big database, did quite a few FOIs to Freedom of Information requests in order to expand that data. Then we brought all the journalists, local journalists in to find the stories and what, how it impacted at their local level. They could compare it to the rest of the country, so they could compare it to their neighbouring council, their neighbouring area. Um, they could share case studies. And they all went to talk to their MPs and ask their MPs for comment. Um, they went to talk to campaigners in their area to ask for comment for their stories. We pulled all that together. Um, and then we published, we, the Bureau published the story in, um, on Channel 4 News, um, in the New Statesman, in The Guardian, uh, all our local uh, papers published. Most of them did big double page spreads and splashes all in the same week. Uh, there was a huge amount of noise. We did it in conjunction with Women's Aid, so they were the campaigners and the NGOs. They were demanding change. A month later, there was a big debate in Parliament. Um, lots of data, lots of evidence, lots of noise, and as a result, lots of people have started asking huge questions about where is this money going, where is it coming from, why are these, but there being such cuts. Um, so hopefully we will end up getting money put back or more, more, more funds put back into this area. So these are the things that I do as an editor and as somebody who is, is running a not-for-profit um, organisation to ensure that um, my reporters um, deliver this change that our funders and as an organisation, our board, would like to see. Um, as I said earlier, <laughs> my... Um, question is always what is the policy ask what is the thing that we think we can change what how can it's a bit of solutions journalism which is a new bit of a buzzword I find solutions journalism slight tricky but I, I do think it's important as a journalist that you understand or know or, or ask yourselves what is the policy change what is the policy ask because you can help that can help you to tell your story um, we always ask where is it best for our story to be published and that's not necessarily in the paper that has the biggest readership, or it's not necessarily in the paper that has a readership that all understand this particular area. So one of the cuttings I showed earlier was with the Daily Mail, um, and we published a story it's about um, the biggest financial fraud that's happening in this country. We published it with the Daily Mail because it's, the Daily Mail is incredibly well respected around personal finance. Um, and a year after publishing that story, the law has been changed as a result um, in part of our of us reporting that story. Um, we think about who are the change makers. So who are the people can, who that can affect change? Who should we be talking to about our journalism? Not just getting it published, but making sure that after publication, our story is emailed to the right MPs, to the right members of the House of Lords, to the right campaigners, um, to the right select committees, so that people can actually use our work. So our work has a long life beyond just the story. Um, we really like to think that our work does more than just become chip wrapping. Um, we, we ask ourselves constantly, has anything changed? So six months after we've published a piece of work, 
I will ask at our Monday meeting. So, you know, what's happened? Has anything changed because of that? And if nothing has changed, we will report the story again, or we will go back to it and report it again. And we will keep doing this. And that's why, you know, our drones work has been going, went for five years because nothing changed. Um, and then finally, at the end of Obama's presidency, he, in June, um, a few months before uh, his presidency ended, he promised that the Department of Defense would publish information and data about um, their drone strikes, their um, covert drone strikes, and that um, cross-agency, there was a new policy put in place um, that said you had to think about civilians within, within the area and you had to ensure or know that you weren't going to kill civilians um, before, you, before drones were allowed to strike. Um, so at that point we thought, okay, maybe it's time to end this, this project. And then um, within weeks of Trump being in president, um, in president, a president, um, we saw so many things changing in Afghanistan. In Yemen, there was a, the first SEALs raid, which was a big story. Um, we reported a, a story out on that. Uh, Trump was saying, it was, a, it was brilliant, it was a triumph, we've killed all these terrorists, it was amazing. We got a reporter out on the ground very quickly into the village that was bombed. Um, we recorded all the people that had died, how old they were and who they were, um, to discover that there were 13 people under the age of 16 who had died, including a six-month-old baby. So, you know, you could not claim that these were all terrorists and that that was a triumph. And as a result of that story, which was published all over the world in loads and loads of um, big American papers and um, broadcasters and in the international media. And suddenly we saw the language starting to change. Um, and after a few days, Washington admitted that our reporting was correct and that actually there had been civilians being killed. And it completely changed the dialogue and the public debate about what was going on and how the Americans were, um, were acting in Yemen. Um, and then the final thing that I think is really important is measure, measuring this change. So, you know, in the traditional model, um, how you measure whether your paper is successful is you, you audit it. How many people are reading it? What's the circulation? Those are the measures of success. What is our profit line? Um, in the not-for-profit model, if transformation, if impact is changed, if that's the measure of success, if that's important, it's really, really important you measure it. It's really hard. It's another thing that this sector is really struggling with. How do we claim that we have had an impact, that we have had a change? In part because there's so many uh, parties that need to affect change. How can we claim our part? And trying to prove it um, or trying to measure it is very, very difficult. And there's research being done and, and is being done about this whole area. But nonetheless, it is quite important that you can, that you do try and measure it and you try and think about it because that will help your reporters to think about it, it will help your management to think about it, your editors, and it's a good way of convincing funders and the general public to, to help support your, um, your model. So I think that's my last slide. Yeah. Thank you. So there's all my, there's all my details and um, our website, um, tbij.com, if you want to have a look. Um, and I'm very happy to take whatever questions you want. Thank so you I can. Very